you don't just live in your home, you live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single-line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. There's so much happening in the world today that we almost missed that last Monday was World Oceans Day. The oceans function essentially as the Earth's lungs, and there's so much incredible information scientists know about them, and perhaps even more that we don't. And I'm so excited today to be interviewing Dr. Ayana Johnson to talk about all of this. She is a marine biologist, a policy expert, and a conservation strategist. She also happens to be one of the coolest New Yorkers that I know. In fact, we got to record this episode face-to-face -face at a studio in New York early in the winter. It was actually the last face-to-face -face interview I got to do for Work in Progress before stay-at-home began. We talked about so many things in this conversation, including how her parents met as civil rights activists, how she got into the work she does because of the confluence of science, policy, culture, and justice— why the way that we all interact with nature now affects its ability to heal for the future, the major role that the oceans play in the climate system, and much, much more. Enjoy. All right, we're going to, I won't do the thing. One of the things I do do for my guests is I do not do your intro with you in the room. Oh, because, great. yeah, everyone's. It, people get very embarrassed of their own accomplishments, which makes sense to me because it's my nightmare for someone to read my bio in front of me. Um, so I just, just so you know, I won't do that to you. We'll just like I appreciate that. Jump I in. I hate compliments. Great. They make me extremely uncomfortable. Do they? Sometimes when people compliment me, I um, I insult them in return. <laughs> Great. <laughs> it's like a weird reflex. Wait, I actually kind of want this to be part. Why? Why do you think that is? Why do you think... Do you think it's women or do you just think it's certain people in general? Do you think it's a side effect of being an intellectual? Why Why are you anti-compliment? 
Well, for yourself anyway, receiving them, I mean. I've just, I don't I didn't grow up with a lot of compliments. Like they were rare. My parents were like very supportive, but not like complimentary per se. Oh, They're like, oh, that's nice. You know, mm. do you want to put that one on the fridge? Okay, sure. You know, mm. like, what are you going to do next? You know, kind of like mm. just encouraging, but not like you're the best. Yeah. And so when people compliment me, um, I don't find it terribly useful and it just makes me squirm. But if someone can give me like brutally honest feedback, mm. I'll love them forever because it's the hardest thing to get. Like no one will actually tell you the truth. Like the people that that are brave enough to tell it like it is. Mm. Like I I think of it as sort of what's the sweet spot between honesty and kindness. Mm. That's always the place I'm trying to find. And the people who have found that are just gems. I think that's a really important distinction, though, because some people think that brutally honest feedback has to be cruel or critical. And there's a time and a place, right? Like people don't think about the context or like, can it be received right now? Or <laughs> who else is listening? Or right. all those things. It's almost like you you require a certain amount of intellectual feedback or critique, mm -hmm. but it has to be, in order for it to work best, it has to be put in a package that is sensitive to vulnerability and, and emotional intelligence, really. Yeah. I mean, that's those are the people that I'm closest to in the world, right? Like, to me, that's mm -hmm. a symbol of a real friendship is when you can critique each other in a loving way mm -hmm. and support each other's sort of quest to improve as humans and be more useful in the world. Yeah, I like that. I like those people. I was having a conversation earlier about how I am trash at small talk. Oh my god, I'm so bad at trash. It. I think of the small the small talk that I've always hated as the weather, Ugh. and now it's awkward in another way because I think of 2019 as the year that the weather stopped being small talk. Yeah, right. Like it's in the 60s today, and mm -hmm. it's too hot in New York too soon, and yeah. we didn't really have winter. And so everyone who talks about the weather, it's to me, that's a climate change conversation. And yes. I've felt that way for years. But I think 2019, people sort of like, nice day, huh? And then you just sort of like cringe at each other. Yeah. Yeah. Like talking about how it's so beautiful in New York today mm -hmm. is actually scary. Mm -hmm. I was discussing this last night with one of my friends in L.A., we were talking about how beautiful it's been there as well, and it's cold, but we were discussing the fact that this is our first February without rain on record. Wow. And that that didn't feel great. I was mm -hmm. like, oh, okay. So it is it is interesting how the conversation's changing. And and I wanna get into that, but you alluded to something before and and where I do normally like to start with people is to go backwards, but we got right into some of this sort of um, I mean, psychosocial experience of being a person in the world today. We which, don't do small talk. No, we're just that ever. has been confirmed. <laughs> um, but you, you know, you were you were referring to childhood, and and as our listeners, I think, are gathering now, we we are in New York, we're in Brooklyn today, we're at your office, mm -hmm. which is so fun. But I want to go backwards and learn with everyone more about your story because. Mm. 
you know, I sit across from you today as this wildly accomplished woman and scientist, but how did all of this start? Were you were you into science and nature as a child? Were you really inquisitive? Did this come later? You know, who who was Ayana at, I don't know, eight or ten years old? I think I peaked at five. At five? I was extremely cool at five. Okay, tell me more about that. Um, so I grew up in Brooklyn, a few blocks from where we're sitting now, um, mm. in Fort Greene, before it was hip at all. Um, it's very hip It's now. extremely <laughs> hip and expensive now. Um And back then it was the ghetto and we had, my family lived in a brownstone and had a backyard and this little backyard and I would just spend Mm -hmm. tons of time back there playing in the dirt and like playing with bugs and earthworms and just making mud pies and getting excited when the daffodils would come up in the spring and When my dad used to walk me to preschool, it would take hours because I would need to, like, look at every leaf in the autumn and every, you know, bud in the spring Mm -hmm. and um, jump in every puddle and all of it. I've always just been completely enamored with nature. I mean, it's fascinating. I think Mm -hmm. most kids are so curious about the natural world. And sadly, a lot of people don't get to explore that as I did. But when I was five, it was basically the one family vacation we could ever really afford to go on. It was to Key West, Florida mm-hmm. um, with our family friends. And we rented a room in a little bed and breakfast. And there was a big pool. And my parents decided like that was the summer I was going to learn how to swim, that it was a skill that I needed to have. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I think it's pretty common when a kid learns to swim that you just then never want to get out of the pool. You're like, (laughs) I live in this pool now, and will you bring me sandwiches, and I'll stand in the shallow end and not get out for lunch. And I just loved being in the water. I loved swimming. But the thing that really changed my life was going on a glass-bottom boat Mm. and seeing a coral reef for the first time, and you— just it's this window into another world. You see all these colors and all these fish mm-hmm. and this just other universe below the surface. And I've always had lots and lots of allergies, but this was the era of like feeding wildlife. So we were feeding, don't do this at home or in the ocean, anybody, but we, we know were better fe- now. <laughs> we were feeding like cheese popcorn to the fish. Oh. And I'm super allergic to milk. And so I was like armpit deep in a bag of cheese popcorn, (laughs) throwing it overboard and watching these like parrotfish and other fish like so colorful come up to the surface to eat this disgusting cheese popcorn. And I was just covered in hives. And so my mother like retrieves me and is like, oh, what have you gotten yourself into? You're covered in like cheese dust. And rinses me off. And I just sat inside the boat while all the other kids were out on the deck, just watching through this window in the bottom. And it was just mind-blowing. And going straight from there to visit the aquarium and the touch tank and getting to hold a sea urchin in my hand. And they Mm. move by, they have these hundreds of tube feet on the bottom. So you feel all these little things crawling across your hand and it slowly is like moving across your palm. And it's bananas. These are like these amazing alien creatures. And I just wanted to know everything about it. And so I asked my mom, like, what, what is it called when this is your job? (laughs) She was like, oh, that's a marine biologist who studies animals in the ocean. And I was like, great, that's my job. 
You decided at five. Yeah. I mean, a lot of kids decide that at yeah. five. I'm just like one of the more stubborn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At five, I wanted to be a veterinarian and then I wanted to be a cardiovascular surgeon. And then I was on that track for a while. Yeah. And then I had an arts requirement and did a play and then went home and told my parents I wasn't going to go to medical school. <laughs> I was going to go to a theater conservatory. You can imagine how thrilling that was for them. They're um, like, maybe you'll play a doctor on TV one day. Honey. I mean, honestly, isn't it funny? <laughs> Look at what's happening now. I had a similar sort of trajectory, though, right? Because I think the world is just so interesting. There's a million jobs that Mm -hmm. could be interesting to have, right? So when I was five, I decided to become a marine biologist. But by the time I was 10, I was learning about the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. and decided I wanted to be the lawyer that got the next Martin Luther King out of jail. Mm. Very specific. (laughs) And and then um, at 15, I wanted to be a park ranger. I went on my first backpacking trips and I was like, you, I'm sorry, you can get paid to walk around in the woods. <laughs> Clearly, this is the best job. Yeah. Um, and then I wanted to be an environmental lawyer by the time I was around 20 in college. And I was studying the Supreme Court and environmental policy. I just thought we need to, like, enforce the rules and change the rules of the mm-hmm. game, right, if we're going to figure out how to protect the planet. And then I kind of – at 25, I was in grad school for marine biology because – it really is the confluence of a lot of those things. It's marine protected areas. It's environmental law and policy. It's science. It's this – it's justice issues too. It's this crazy puzzle of how do we interact with nature now to heal it for the future? Mm. Um, and there's just a lot of different elements to figuring that out. And I just have always been interested in working at that nexus of science and policy and culture and justice and like, Mm -hmm. what are the solutions there, right? Not some sort of techno-utopian nonsense, but like, what are the things that are actually going to work for people, for communities, Mm -hmm. for the planet? Yeah, real practical application that is possible and attainable for people feels important. Yeah. When you talk about getting fascinated by the legal world and the civil rights movement, was that stuff coming from in, in, you know, junior high, high school, was that coming from school or was that coming from home? Where where were your parents and all of this? My parents were civil rights activists. Mm. That's how they met um, in the 60s, in late 60s in New York. And I remember watching the Eyes on the Prize documentary series about the civil rights movement when I was a kid, maybe like eight And I had these terrible nightmares for weeks about Mm. the Ku Klux Klan because, you know, I'm black, biracial. And I thought that the KKK was going to throw a Molotov cocktail through my bedroom window and steal me while my parents were sleeping and the house would burn down and they would die. Mm. That was what I understood was possible in America at eight years old. And Mm. so, I mean, that's... I guess in a way that's something that never really leaves you, right? Like I don't have those nightmares anymore, but to know, especially in the resurgence of hate that we're seeing right now in the Trump era, to know that humans are pos- are capable of doing that mm-hmm. and can and have done it again is really scary. And so when people, sometimes it's frustrating that there aren't more people working on climate issues because- it's extremely important that we prevent our entire climate system from melting down, right? Yeah. 
but we also need to take care of each other in the process. And so I have so much respect for people who are working on all the other challenges. And it really is so deeply intertwined, mm-hmm. right? Like, where are the refineries? They're they're probably in communities of color that now have all these like lung problems because mm-hmm. of it. All the burning of fossil fuels causing air pollution it's, that's also ruining our climate. Mm-hmm. There's so many connections between these things. So the people who are fighting for all sorts of different justice and legal protections for people. Um, we need all that work to continue to. And it, there were, I was definitely like a little bit of a brat about it silently to myself for a while. I was like, oh, we need everyone to be working on climate solutions. But if everyone stops what they're doing and works on climate, a lot of things are going to fall apart. And so it's just a matter of becoming ever more networked and connected Mm. and figuring out how to do everything at the same time, like Mm -hmm. the short term and the long game. And I think to your point, something that has been very impactful for me and that I wish for people listening to this conversation is to realize that whatever issue it is you care most about, climate is entangled with it. Mm -hmm. So if it is racial justice, if it is gender equality, if it is education access, whatever it is, climate affects every single issue. Mm -hmm. And if that is because refineries are in communities of color or if that is because when you travel around the world and you see areas that are devastated by climate, it's the girls who get pulled out of school first to walk for water. Mm -hmm. It's I mean, it affects And then get sexually abused as they're walking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The hardest thing I've read in the last month was reading about communities in Africa going through drought. I don't Mm -hmm. remember exactly where the story is from. And the, the community is asking, the women in the community are requesting more condoms because it is so likely that someone will try to rape you while you're going to get water female condoms they're requesting that the the girls just want to wear them as they're walking so they don't get AIDS as they're going to get water that they have to go further for because of the drought. I mean, this is the kind of shit that people are dealing with in the world. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we have to, you know, be working on all of it mm-hmm. together. And it's pretty scary. But I do think there's a lot of ways for everyone to be a part of the solution. And yeah. it's not, and it's actually like, the most gratifying and enjoyable work I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, protecting the planet is... Seems worth the, trying. Yeah, it seems worth, worth trying. Worth it's also, like, the coolest thing you could ever do. Did you ever hear... Oh, God. I'll go I'll go back and see if I can find it to link in, in the notes. But there's this amazing podcast that came out years ago. I want to say NPR did it. And it's uh, with... A guy who's a sound researcher, mm. and he records the natural world. Yeah. And he did these recordings uh, either at Yellowstone or Yosemite. This is where my mild dyslexia really gets to me. I can I'm never like, oh. remember which is which. Um, I also can't tell the difference between, like, Glacier National Park and, like, other ones. I mean, I'm like, it's a national park with why? Like, yeah. who knows? <laughs> but th- the the wolves had been hunted and removed. and oh, essentially, this is Yellowstone. It's Yellowstone. Okay. Yeah. Ha-ha. Uh, so the— the ecosystem had collapsed and you could hear it in the sound. 
And then they reintroduced wolves and the entire system changed, changed and the rivers got healthier yeah. and the birds got healthier and they did, everything got better. That is an amazing story. And yeah. I understand, I think, most of it. But so it turns out when you remove wolves from an ecosystem, then you have this overabundance of grazing animals. Yep. And so they're eating so much of the vegetation and I wish I could remember the whole chain of events, but you're right. It ends up affecting the rivers because, ah, here's what it is. All of the grazers are then going down to the river to drink and they're Mm -hmm. eroding the banks and then Mm -hmm. um, eating so much of the vegetation that the streams are getting warmer because there aren't trees over them. Mm -hmm. And that's bad for the fish because the water is too hot. Yeah. yeah, And so it's all connected in these crazy ways. Now I need to go look up that science again because these sort of chain reactions Mm -hmm. in – ecosystems are bananas bananas (laughs) and and you it was so powerful for me to hear in these recordings what yellowstone sounded like Mm -hmm. when it wasn't healthy and then what it sounded like when it got healthy again yeah because when you can hear it you know it's the audio version of visualization It, it, it gives you a picture of what's happening and i think When you are not a scientist, as I am not, though I'm very interested in science, or maybe people listening at home, you know, who don't have the expertise that you do, when these things become quantifiable in some way, you can personalize them. And that, that makes me excited about the plethora of information we have available now. We have more ways to personalize what's happening to each other. We have more ways to personalize and understand what's happening to the planet. And my hope is that we choose to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about the fact that we all get to choose what we do with our time. And, you know, I'm not hating on anyone who chooses to watch reality TV, but I'm like, maybe there's something cooler you could be doing <laughs> with that hour <laughs> that would like teach you something and make you feel really good about yourself instead of really bad about yourself. You know, the the research all shows that if you spend an hour on Facebook or Instagram, you feel worse than you did when you started. So I'm like, I feel pretty cool when I listen to the Science of sound, sound of science, (laughs) the sound of nature, whatever. It's a symphony and it's beautiful. It is a symphony and it's beautiful. And I think the the loss of biodiversity Hmm. is um, is like a real soul loss, right? Mm -hmm. Like the loss of that symphony is um, is quite a sad thing that we're doing to the planet and. And that's I, for a long time, people talked about climate and biodiversity separately. Mm. And now it's starting to become more and more clear how those things are related. The loss of insects and as, you know, one of the things that's a sort of outgrowth of climate as as well as, you know, the the way that we farm and use all these terrible pesticides, which is a whole other thing. My mom's a farmer, so I think about farming constantly. That I really want to get into. I've been learning lately a lot about regenerative agriculture Mm -hmm. and how if we implemented regenerative ag here, we could flip climate change. We could reduce chemical outputs. We could increase profits for farmers. I mean, Mm -hmm. all these things that are so amazing. When did your mom become a farmer? Because I'm curious, you know, we've talked about that the moment where the science hit you, the moment where the civil rights history became ingrained in you. And then, you know, you're talking about college, but I am curious about what's in between and, mm-hmm. and curious about how your parents informed some of that as activists. 
So so where in her timeline does the farming come in? That's new. So mm. my parents moved upstate after I graduated from college. Mm. So I don't know, Boris, how long ago was that? <laughs> um, so <laughs> eight, 18 years ago. Okay. No, that can't be. Maybe it was a few years after college that she moved up there. Yeah. So she's been farming. My mom's been farming for about 15 years now. And it sort of slowly evolved. Um, mm. It started with buying a, a farmhouse on top of a hill on 15 acres and then realizing the soil was the topsoil was really thin. The the bedrock was really close to the surface. And so getting chickens to help fertilize everything with running around free range and just pooping everywhere and fertilizing. <laughs> and then it became 50 chickens. And then it became 100. And at one point, we had 400 chickens. Wow. But the real mayhem was when I think we had 37 roosters at one point. Nope, <laughs> that definitely just not. too much. That noise. Oh, those dudes just were—they had no chill at all. Yeah, that's and a they're no They're brutal for me. with some of the hens too. So, and then an orchard and a huge vegetable garden, mm. and then a greenhouse with you know, and a barn with solar panels on the roof, mm. and just it just you know, over the course of a dozen years, she kind of started to figure out all of these ways and create this model for what a homestead could look like in a sort of modern and lovely way. Mm. What would it actually look like to? grow your own food and eat fresh eggs every morning and be able to grow food into the winter in a greenhouse. And so I spend about a week, a month upstate New York there to sort of reset myself. And honestly, sometimes just have a week without meeting so I can get to on emails. Yeah. yeah. And so being able to see, to learn about our food system by watching my mother try to create a better model has been fascinating. And she's she was an English teacher before she retired. And so she's just a forever teacher. And every time I go up, she's got like three more books for me to read about regenerative farming, which I think is Ooh. something people don't really know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so regenerative farming is basically you're trying to farm in a way that regenerates nature, regenerates the health of the soil, absorbs a lot of carbon, supports biodiversity. And if you're constantly tilling and plowing the land, that dist- disturbs the soil and the microbial life in the soil and actually releases a lot of carbon and causes erosion. And regenerative practices say no to pesticides and other major chemicals because they're just not good for life. And so it's really exciting to think about having a way that we grow food that actually absorbs carbon instead of burning tons of fossil fuels and using all of this fertilizer that is super, super energy intensive to make and all Mm -hmm. the pesticides and all this stuff. So I love the idea of having like healthier food and healthier planet and healthier farm communities Mm -hmm. as um, all at once. Why I mean, why would we not want that? And not only healthier, but one of the things that was so striking to me to learn about regenerative ag is that it's such a financial booster for the farmers because one of the largest costs that farmers incur is the cost of these pesticides. Mm -hmm. So in some of the research that I was shown, farms that have transferred to regenerative ag have seen their profit margins go up by, by up to 80%. Yeah. 
And the transition can be quite hard mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for farmers because there's not really a lot of support. And that's actually one of the things that's mentioned in the Green New Deal resolution is how are we going to support small farmers as they're making this transition? Yes. And you know what would it look like to develop a plan for that? And we should. I mean, we subsidize so many things. Why wouldn't we, we subsidize? subsidize farming a lot, just all the wrong kinds. Exactly. The big monocultures that are um, doing a lot of toxic stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I... I care a lot about where my food comes from, and I will never complain about the prices in a farmer's market because I know how hard, how many hours it takes to produce that stuff. So if I can afford it, I'm just going to pay for it because we just don't value food in America. When we think about the percentage of our income that Americans spend on food versus people in other places, ours is way lower. We just assume that food should be cheap. Hmm. Um. I'm not going to get the percentages right, but in some countries, it's like people spend 20, 30 percent of their income on food. And in the U.S., it's like single digits. Wow. We spend Why? all our money on rent and like health care. Right. Um, Interesting that we don't subsidize those things either with all the uh-huh. money. Uh-huh. With all the money we pay the government, we don't get those things. There's some better ways to do some of this stuff. Yeah, it's so weird. Meanwhile, like the average age of a farmer in New York is like late 60s. And hmm. young people can't afford to buy land and, you know, get into the business. So we've yeah. got like, a lot of work to do on subsidizing the good stuff mm-hmm. instead of the bad stuff and figuring out how we can facilitate this transition towards climate solutions. So for people listening who are struck by that, inspired by that, want to help, because I am so one of the things I, I get really hung up on is we have the money. The mm-hmm. government has all of the money, but to your point, we put it into the wrong things. So I know that I want to be advocating on, let's say, you know, for easy math, obviously the fiscal budgets of the United States government are much bigger than this, but like, let's say it's 10 million bucks that we have in a in a subsidy account for farming. How do we... Let's say it's $10 billion. Yeah, $10 billion, But a billion is hard for people to picture. <laughs> you know what I mean? I always like to yeah. bring it down. It's like it could, we could use $10 for argument's sake. Yes. But like there's this account of farming subsidy. Mm-hmm. How do we, as people who live here and who eat the food being produced on these farms, how do we apply pressure and activism to the government to say, we want you to take that money that, by the way, is our money. It's our taxpayer money. We want you, the government, to take that money and subsidize farming transitions Mm -hmm. to regenerative ag. We want to see subsidies for, you know, affordable land parceling for people who want to become Mm -hmm. farmers. How do we do that? Because I think for so many of us, we go, well, yeah, obviously our tax money is not being spent well, but what are we supposed to do about it? So some of these are federal issues and some of them are state. Um, And obviously there's a lot we can do as individuals um, in our own lives as well. On the federal level, the farm bill is like the big bill. Mm -hmm. And so there's an opportunity to speak up to your representatives in Congress about what you want a farm bill to look like. I'm not sure off the top of my head when it's next being reauthorized, but I think every few years they have to sort of reexamine what's in that. So keep your eye out on the farm bill. um, And there's definitely pressure building to to not support, you know, big corporate industrial agriculture Mm. um, and to start to support more of this um, regenerative practices. I mean, the Farm Bill is also the place where they do things like support um, conservation of of habitats, you know, and 
and paying farmers to not farm every single inch and leave some space Mm -hmm. for nature. Um, So there's a lot of things that can be done within the structure of the farm bill. And at a state level, there's a lot of action, too, in, um, in state legislatures thinking about, you know, what's supported, um, what types of um, agricultural practices are even allowed. I mean, there are some pesticides and chemicals that just should not be used. Mm -hmm. They should not be allowed. There's Um, something that the Trump administration just reversed the ban of, and it's some horrible chemical name, which I won't mm -hmm. remember, but it's it's been proven to cause very severe damage to the brain development of babies, Mm -hmm. and they just reauthorized its usage. But they've done that many times over the past few years. It's shocking to me that there could be such a petty energy in politics that simply because a leader of a different political party made a good decision for the health of the American public, the next leader would reverse it yeah. out of spite. The EPA is basically a public health organization. Mm-hmm. People don't think about it that way. But it's all of these ways in which we need to prevent pollution and environmental, you know, contamination and all these other issues because Mm -hmm. they're major human health problems, Mm -hmm. whether it's our drinking water or our air or our food, um, you know, making sure that we're not constantly bombarded by toxins. Like that's what the EPA is there to do. It's not about tree hugging and biodiversity so much as it is about protecting human health. And that's something I, you know, that sort of framing of it was really helpful for me to think through. Gina McCarthy, who was the head of the EPA under President Obama, who is now just recently become um, the head of NRDC, I had the chance to speak with her and she was like, I think of my work as protecting public health. Mm. Um, and that's I, really illuminating, yeah. actually. Um, that's how the standards are set for emissions, right? It's like, at what level will someone get asthma? At what level will people develop lung problems? At what level of pollution in the water will people start to get sick? And then setting safe standards that are protective of the most vulnerable people. I mean, we can't set them to like, what is the strongest, most robust human able to withstand? We have to set things to take care of everybody. And Mm -hmm. so that's how the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act were written. And that's it's they're not arbitrary. They are um, the standards are set to protect us. When you think about learning all of this and and applying a really, in my mind, delicious mix of science and activism to the way that you look at the world. When did you first learn to do that? Was that happening in high school or would you say in, in college? Where where were you really honing that skill? I think as soon as I realized that so many of the things that I loved were at risk, Mm. it became impossible to think about science just because it's cool. Like, there is so much that's cool in the ocean that I would just want to nerd out and study forever. Like, if it could—like, octopuses? Come on. Like— The coolest. The absolute coolest creature. Also, I remember as a kid— Finding out about the deep sea fish that mm-hmm. literally have neon lights. Lantern fish. On yeah. their bodies. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's lots of them. Yeah. You know, this is crazy. Th- that's crazy to me. The ocean, it is. It's filled with it's aliens, amazing. essentially. It's amazing. And so, yeah, I'm octopus have three hearts and can make independent decisions with each arm. Like, come on, right? But, <laughs> But so much of the things that I love 
um, so many of the things that I love are threatened. Mm. So many of the coastal communities that I care about are threatened. My dad was Jamaican. I grew up in Brooklyn. Like these are places that are at risk. Mm-hmm. The entire Caribbean, you know, right? The entire tropics, coral reefs will almost certainly be gone within our lifetime. Mm. And I- so once you know those things, it becomes impossible to just think about, well, let me just study it while it falls apart, right? It's like, let me understand this as best as I can to then connect all the dots I can and collaborate with whoever are the people I can team up with to try to make things as good as we can. And I think Mm -hmm. it's a really, it feels really good to be approaching things that way, Mm -hmm. to be focused on how do we use science to advance solutions as opposed to science just because it's awesome. And I don't want to like sort of deny the importance of of basic research science because that leads to all sorts of discoveries that are very valuable. And we need to continue to develop a more and more nuanced understanding of the way that the world works. But we also need to make sure that there are a lot of people out there figuring out how to use the results of scientific research to make better decisions about how we live on the planet. Yeah. The thing that comes to mind when you talk about it is continuing to integrate these spaces. Mm-hmm. You know, the the practical experience of everyone's daily lives and and the science, the kinds of science that you're talking about, whether about the ocean or about farming, about climate, they need to be as visibly intertwined when we examine them from any end of the spectrum. They need to be as as visibly intertwined as they really are in practice. And I think the more that we all learn about this stuff and we see how connected this all is to the experience of our daily lives in every moment, in the air we breathe, in the water we drink, it helps it helps people get it and it helps people care more and, and speak up more. And when I think about some of the work that you've done you know, it's fun because I always, I really like to look at the bios when it's like, <laughs> when it's my friends and I'm just like, God, these people are so badass. And, you know, you, when you talk about the Caribbean, you led the first successful island-wide zoning effort that resulted in protections for a third of Barbuda's coastal waters. You you took this to other governments. You have managed a diverse portfolio of ocean grants. I mean, you've really been to your point when you reference doing protective work. You've done this everywhere, you know, around the world and and here at home and around the world is a funny way to think about the ocean since it covers, you know, like (laughs) 97% of, is it 97 or 91? It's, it's 97% mm. of the livable space on the planet because it is so deep, but mm-hmm. it's 71% of the surface. Got it. Like, the ocean is really everything. It's really big. And for some reason, we don't think about it that way. What we really don't think about is the role that the ocean plays in the climate system. Mm. So the ocean has absorbed uh, 93% of the heat that we have trapped by burning fossil fuels. and emitting all these greenhouse gases. Mm. So the planet would be so much hotter 
if the ocean hadn't absorbed 93% of the heat that we're trapping Mm -hmm. with greenhouse gases. And the ocean has also absorbed about 30% of the CO2 that we've emitted. Something that I love that you talk about, and I think this is really helpful, again, when we think about perspective, when we talk about carbon. So in the United States, in the in the market, we price carbon anywhere from $20 to $200 per ton, which means that the ocean uptake at that percentage that you're referring to represents an annual subsidy to the global economy of anywhere from 40 to 400 billion dollars. Every year, the ocean is subsidizing our economy at 400 billion dollars by absorbing carbon. And when we think about it that way, when we again, to me it's helpful because it reminds me that the environment and the economy are inextricably linked. Absolutely. And and I'm curious for people at home, can you walk us through what that looks like? When when the ocean is absorbing 93% of this heat that we're creating, what's happening? Oh, gosh. Because we know yeah. fish are dying. We know reefs are dying. We know acidity is going up. But, you know, you're the scientist here. so That was a great summary. In, enlighten, enlighten us. I can only add just depressing details to your, <laughs> your accurate summary. I mean, it feels important to know what they are. Yeah, so— Sorry, guys, but we got to do it. So, yes, the ocean is Not getting— Not sorry, actually. I, 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 rescind, <laughs> I rescind that apology. This feels important and also enlightening and also inspiring. Also, you're welcome. So you're Here's welcome for the facts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the ocean is getting warmer. Um, and a lot of—you know, we're all adapted to—every organism has a temperature range that it's comfortable in. And so corals have— a temperature range they're comfortable in, for example, when it gets too hot, they bleach. And that means that they, they turn white because they're expelling all of these symbiotic um, algae out of their tissues that are doing photosynthesis and feeding the corals. So they shoot out all their colorful mm. symbionts and called zooxanthellae. And then they turn white. And then if they don't get them back, they starve. And so coral reefs... Um, and it's like if it's too hot for too long, the bleaching happens. And then mm. you see pictures of reefs that are white and then they sort of get overgrown with algae and then they start to crumble. And co- we've already raised uh, the temperature of the planet by w- over one degree Celsius. And when that hits one and a half, the scientific projection is that 95% of coral reefs will be gone. When that hits two degrees, it's 99%. We are now almost certain to surpass two degrees within the next few decades. So Mm. that means that coral reefs are done. And that's the ecosystem that I studied for a decade. That's where my dad's family is from, you know, Mm. growing up swimming, you know, above the coral reefs of Jamaica. That's where, you know, Hundreds of millions of people depend on seafood as their primary source of protein. And that's Mm -hmm. the ecosystem where all these fish are living. That's um, the home to a huge percentage of the world's biodiversity is on coral reefs. That's where we're getting the source of a lot of medicines and other compounds that are really healthy and healing. And so fish are that can't fish are moving towards the poles away from the tropics. And that has food security implications. Sorry, away from the tropics and towards the poles. Mm -hmm. Fish are leaving 
the equator in search of cooler waters. And that has really big implications for fishing communities all over the world Mm -hmm. um, and the economies that obviously are depending on that. And we don't have the regulatory structures in place to be dynamic enough to track these changes because fish are migrating at a rate of like, you know, five or 10 kilometers a decade. They're just moving to different places and we don't Mm -hmm. have the laws in place to manage things sustainably because it's all changing so fast. So we have this confluence of things. At the same time, yes, absorbing all this CO2 makes the ocean more acidic and that is bad for anything that's trying to grow a shell and oysters, mussels, clams, a skeleton like corals makes it harder for them to grow. And it also just, we've changed the chemistry of seawater. Like the acidity, the pH is changed. Like the ocean absorbs all this carbon dioxide and then that sort of breaks down, becomes carbonic acid, and then it breaks down further. And then there's these hydrogen plus ions. And that's what you're measuring when you measure pH. Mm. Um, And just that's the thing that blows my mind the most, that we've actually changed the pH of the entire ocean. And so just like we breathe air, Mm. marine creatures breathe breathe water. And that's, they smell through water. That's how they navigate their world. And so when we've changed the chemistry of seawater, we've messed with their ability to to smell where home is. Mm-hmm. And so you have these creatures that don't know where to go. Um, they don't smell predators, so they get eaten. And oh. predators can't smell prey, so they go hungry. And it's just, and they can't find each other to mate. And there's all these really large ecological problems that result from the fact that we've changed the pH of the ocean by forcing it to absorb all this CO2. So yeah, it's bad. It's really bad. Mm -hmm. And overfishing and pollution on top of that are really not helping. And just direct destruction of habitats is really not helping, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to be caring about all these other impacts and problems at the same time, right? Like we can't, we can't let everything just be polluted and bulldozed and focus on climate because then there will be then there will be nothing to grow back. Right. But I don't want to be super depressing because we also basically have all the solutions that we need. And this a lot of them come from the ocean. Me. So what do we do? Where because again, you're the expert here and as a marine biologist, I'm curious what what's your plan of action? If if you could wave a magic wand and take action tomorrow with no roadblocks. On so, ocean and climate issues? Absolutely. What, what would I would implement say? Senator Warren's Blue New Deal plan that I helped advise. Um, I just love her so much. I'm <laughs> Me too. Okay, um, let's talk about the Blue New Deal. What do we got to do? So she was the only climate, uh, she was the only candidate who had a plan. For the ocean and brought together experts to help advise that. And it highlights all the opportunities for the ocean to be part of the climate solution. So one of those is renewable energy. So wind actually blows more strongly and consistently offshore than onshore. So putting wind turbines offshore is a really big deal, especially mm-hmm. because 40% of Americans live near the coast. So it's actually producing energy near where people live, which is great. So that's one. And investing in the research and development for other forms of renewable energy offshore, like um, wave energy and solar energy 
um, in the ocean. We've got a lot of real estate out there that we <laughs> could be using, which needs to be planned. You mentioned my work um, in the Caribbean with ocean zoning. Basically, there isn't a plan for what happens where in the ocean. And as we start doing more and more things offshore, we need to make sure we're, we're developing ocean zoning plans or marine spatial plans, just like we do on land to make sure that industrial and commercial and residential and parks all and farmland all have their place. Um, so, so yes, renewable energy offshore is a big climate solution that we should be like racing forward on. And we can't let these like honestly selfish concerns about, I don't want to see a wind turbine from my beach house be a part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, or I don't want those transmission lines to come on shore in my town. Like we just can't be fighting this not in my backyard sorts of fights anymore when it comes to renewable energy. Mm-hmm. So that's one. The a second one is one of my favorites. In the same way that we should be pushing for regenerative farming on land, we can do regenerative farming in the ocean. Mm. So I'm not talking about like salmon and big carnivorous fish that we're always going to have to like figure out how to feed. But regenerative ocean farming is farming of seaweeds and shellfish. Mm. And because the ocean has three dimensions, you can actually grow an insane amount of of food in a small sort of piece of the surface Mm because you have all this, you have all this depth to play with. And so you can grow clams on the bottom and you can grow oysters hanging from ropes and you can grow curtains of seaweed hanging down Mm. and you can grow cages at all different levels full of scallops and oysters. And so that kind of shellfish actually has a lower carbon footprint than being vegan because you don't need to feed it. You don't need to water it. There's no Mm. pesticides involved. There's no fertilizer. There's no fresh water usage. These are all you know, things that just grow off of the nutrients in the seawater and sunlight. And we need to be eating a lot more seaweed. It's really good for you. Um, And making sure that our waters are clean enough that it's safe to eat the shellfish out of them. So eating farmed shellfish and algae is actually a great thing that you can do for the planet and sort of shifting our food system towards these regenerative things that are taking excess nutrients out of the seawater. So the way that we do agriculture on land right now, these destructive industrial practices, all this excess fertilizer and all this topsoil runs down rivers to the ocean. Right. And um, figuring out how to absorb a lot of those nutrients is a big, a big challenge because otherwise it starts to create dead zones and all sorts of other Mm -hmm. things. I mean, this yet another example of how everything is connected. I mean, rivers run to the sea. It really does matter what we do on land if we care about our ocean. So offshore renewable energy, um, regenerative farming of the ocean, there's also a really important, uh, it's also really important to restore coastal ecosystems. Mm. So wetlands and mangroves and seagrasses and oyster reefs, all of these ecosystems absorb tons of carbon. Yeah. Insane amounts of carbon. In fact, a wetland can absorb five times more carbon in its soils than a rainforest. And when we talk about planting trees, I am all for planting trees, but we should really be talking about restoring coastal ecosystems as well and protecting the ones that we still have. Because not only are they sequestering 
tons of carbon. It's called blue carbon um, when it's salty in salty habitats. These ecosystems are sequestering tons of carbon, but they're also protecting us from storms that are getting stronger and more frequent because of climate change. So, for example, communities that were in the path of the tsunami in Indonesia, mm-hmm. where they had mangroves intact, they they did much, much better. I mean, these mm-hmm. are the ecosystems that have always been the barriers protecting our coastline. And they're also the ecosystems that are the nursery habitats for baby fish and lobsters and all of these other things that we rely on for food security. So, um, yeah, shout out to coastal ecosystems yeah. doing their damnedest to protect us. Meanwhile, we're like bulldozing, bulldozing them to build more resorts on the coast. We're bulldozing them to build shrimp farms, which are then put dumping all of these sort of insecticides in because they're grown in such high densities that they're all getting sick. So we Ooh. have to put antibiotics in there and they're all getting lice and all this like disgusting Ooh. stuff. And then those are the communities that get hit by storms and are not protected. Right. Um, so if there's one thing that everyone listening can do is actually to stop eating shrimp. It's the easiest thing to do if you care about the ocean. It's the most wow. popular seafood in America. And there are two ways that shrimp get to your plate. You catch wild shrimp mostly by dragging a net over the seafloor because shrimp live at the bottom. So you're basically like clear cutting the ocean floor to get shrimp. And the nets you have to use have such small mesh that they catch everything else. And most of that stuff just gets thrown back dead while they're picking out the shrimp in there. And shrimp are a small percentage of the catch. So it's very destructive to habitats and very wasteful. There are a few exceptions. There's like shrimp caught with traps in Oregon, pink shrimp. Mm. But you'll know, like, it will be expensive. <laughs> right. um, and, the sh- and the shrimp that's farmed is associated with the loss of coastal habitats, often in Southeast Asia, which makes these communities very vulnerable to storms. And mm-hmm. it makes them, it ruins the habitat for their wild fisheries. And a lot of the, the processing of shrimp Um, is done by workers who are being abused, basically like slave labor to peel shrimp. So whether you care about human rights or the environment or both, hopefully it's both, Mm -hmm. um, shrimp would be the thing I always ask people to give up as a first step. And even if you unfortunately care about neither of those things, which I don't imagine you listen to my podcast, that's the (laughs) kind of person that you are, but hey, just in case, if it's just your personal health that you care about, the fact that, to your point, these farmed shrimp are doused in pesticides and antibiotics and medications that aren't good for you to be ingesting. And if you pay attention to these things, multiple grocery stores, I remember there was a big scandal a couple of years ago, were caught bleaching their shrimp when they I were— I didn't hear about yeah, this Yeah, this one. was in the South. I lived in North Carolina for a long time, so I heard about this from friends who lived there still. Um Grocery stores were caught bleaching their shrimp when they were starting to kind of go bad. They realized if they gave them a bleach rinse, they'd look new. And so people were eating shrimp not only packed with antibiotics, but also bleach. (laughs) So, yeah, I don't don't eat those anymore. Carrots, like baby carrots, which are not a thing, right? They're just shaped down big carrots. They're not actually babies. And then it's not, uh, it's chlorine. To sort of like keep them fresh longer Gross. once they're peeled. Just like buy whole, buy just full size carrots. carrots. Just buy regular, buy organic carrots if you can afford it. Sure, yeah. One thing that I am curious about, because I mean, I love the list of things that are helpful. 
And when we talk about these communities that are being affected, especially, you know, when you're talking about these coastal cities in Southeast Asia, storms and human rights violations that are all associated with climate, I'm also curious about your perspective about climate refugees. Mm. Because as we're talking about the warming of the planet and the eventual ocean rise, we're talking about tens of millions of people who are going to be displaced. Hundreds. Hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. And and the last statistic I looked at that was an estimate for 2020 was saying that by the end of this year, there will probably be 20 million climate refugees, people who are having to flee where they live because the climate is making it uninhabitable. What What are you seeing? What are your just sort of observations and opinions on all of this? It's yet another reason we need to fix our immigration system, mm. right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. another way in which all of these challenges are related. When there was a big hurricane in the Caribbean a few months ago um, that hit the Bahamas really hard, there was a small boat with a few dozen people on it tried to come to Florida because mm -hmm. they didn't have homes anymore. And we turned them away because the Trump administration is heartless. Mm -hmm. And if we're doing that to like, you know, three dozen people from the Bahamas mm -hmm. who are just looking for a safe place to live. And we're looking at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who are going to need to find a new place to live. We need to rethink everything about our relationship with borders and mm -hmm. how we treat each other. Um, and I also don't, I mean, there could be 10 or 20 million climate refugees just from Bangladesh alone. And of course, those are people who have done the least to cause global climate change. Mm. But it's not just an issue for poor people in other countries, right? We saw what happened to New York City during Hurricane Sandy. Yeah. And it absolutely hit, um, you know, poor communities and communities of color really hard. But it hit New York City really hard, too. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, wealthy people are are going to be able to buffer themselves from the impacts longer. But in the end, this affects all of us. And sea level has already risen about a foot in New York. It could rise another three to six feet by in by the end of this century in the next few decades. We're not prepared. No city is prepared for the amount of sea level rise that is coming. And so this is one of the um, new things that I'm working on is starting a think tank for the future of coastal cities mm. called Urban Ocean Lab that combines my interests, right? My understanding of the ocean and climate system, my sort of being from Brooklyn and just loving the vibrance of coastal cities, my sort of like policy nerd tendencies, my commitment to justice and at the nexus of those things is the future of coastal cities. And we really need to be thinking through that future from a lens of creativity and design. How do we design the world that we want to live in and then create the policy framework that will help us get there? Listening to you talk about this stuff literally makes my whole body light up. Like it makes me feel tingly and excited. And then I'm like, I should just move here and come and work for you. Yes. And like, what are we doing? This is what is we're that, doing. You're no, going to film your show in New York uh, somehow magically. Great. And then you will become like a partner in the Urban Ocean Lab and we'll just figure it out. That's all I want to do. <laughs> and this is the thing I think. It can be so fun and creative, yes. right? Like yes, yes, yes. we get to choose 
what future we have. We've mm-hmm. like really sort of baked in a lot of warming with a, a bunch of really selfish and cruel decisions on the part of fossil fuel corporations and politicians over the last few decades, right? Like there's a lot that we can't undo, but we still have a huge array of possible futures. And every day I wake up and I'm like, all right, we can't get back to like perfect, pristine nature. A lot has changed. There's a lot of like really bad stuff coming. But how do we build the most beautiful and vibrant and inclusive and thriving world that we can? Mm. Because that's the world I want to live in. Like, Mm. I want to hang out with you on my mom's regenerative farm and like eat fresh eggs for breakfast. Like, why would I not want that world? And so I think... It can be, I mean, as a scientist, it can be really hard to read the science because I know what that science, those numbers, those graphs mean for people. Mm-hmm. But when I look at the scientific projections, the scenarios that scientists are developing, there's a bunch of different scenarios. And I'm like, I want the best one. Yeah. If this is a multiple choice question, like how yeah. do we get that good future, that like best version of the future? Yeah, I will always pick option A, good future. <laughs> Let's pick that one. Like, I don't want to know what option D is. You don't want to know. It's not good. Yeah. And something I think is really interesting because people act like we can't all agree on this stuff and they act like we can't get our shit together on this stuff. But the thing that was most illuminating for me two years ago, I got to go up and sit with a bunch of the scientists who work on the global seed bank Mm. or the global seed vault. And they were talking about Science. Which flooded because it was too warm and it things were melting. Mm-hmm. Because the permafrost in the <laughs> northernmost city on Earth is melting. Like, hello. But Humans are sometimes just like, no. The worst. It's like, how could we be this stupid? What is wrong with us? But <sighs> it was amazing to be there because prior to it flooding, it, things were starting to leak. And I was like, this is not a good look. But you go in where the seeds are where these, it's essentially like safety deposit boxes Mm -hmm. that all these different countries put in. And there's Thailand and Brazil, and and the list goes on and on around the world. I mean, Syria, like places that have been devastated can get their ancient crops back and their their floor, you know, their their plants, their olive trees that have been destroyed Mm. in a civil war. They can go back into the land when people stop being so stupid because these seeds are in this vault and I'm standing there looking at boxes and you can't make this up. This felt like a movie looking at these boxes of deposits three feet apart from each other, from the United States, Russia, North Korea. And I was like, Oh, see, see, we actually know what's important. No matter what our governments are, we know what's worth preserving. And it's the ecosystems that as humans, we live on. There are certain things we can all agree on. And it made me want to just like sit all the leaders down, you know, like a really angry mom after school, like when the kids, I don't know, like break curfew and stop answering cell phones and just like <laughs> line them up and smack them all across the face in a row. I was like, all of you need a good smack to the head from like a really angry mother who says like, get your shit together. You know better. Because, look, yeah. all these boxes are here. We agree on this, actually. And it's the same thing on um, on pretty much every issue. Mm-hmm. The public opinion is always well ahead of the politics. Mm. Like, the work that you do 
is so important to shift culture because that culture leads policy change. Cultural change leads political bravery, right? Like politicians are generally very wussy. They want to get reelected. They don't Mm. want to piss people off. They want to make sure people will vote for them again. Um, They don't want to offend, you know, big, big money people or corporate, you know, influential corporations. And so they need to be pushed so hard by their constituents to say, like, you need to be doing more on climate change. Uh, you need to be doing more on justice. You need to be doing more on, you know, all of these things mm-hmm. and having these conversations so that people can take that back in their communities and say, like, we need a leader who represents us on this. I just I think maybe the hardest thing I've ever done was published a few weeks ago, an op-ed calling out my own member of Congress, Hakeem Jeffries, for not doing anything on climate change. He is not even tweeting about it. Like, he's just completely unengaged. He's in the Democratic leadership in the House, represents one of the deepest blue districts in America, one of the most progressive Mm -hmm. districts in America, and is, like, not doing anything to lead on climate policy. And that's endangering so many people. But it can be so scary to even tell the truth. Like this is I'm not like making things up. Like these are facts. Like you look at the congressional record of who is introducing bills or co-sponsoring bills. You can look at what people are saying publicly. And we all need to be holding our reps accountable if they're missing in action on the, the most important justice issue of our time. Yes. Yeah, because climate science is a justice issue. Yeah. And I think it's really important to hammer that point home for people. What do you think? Because I was going to ask you what gives you hope, but you've just talked about it, which makes me feel really excited. Yeah. And if there's more, please enlighten me. I'm, I wonder about hope in science. And then it leads me to also want to ask you, what do you think makes a good marine biologist? <laughs> because you're a great one. And I want to know what from the inside, what you think? The hope stuff, I have a really tenuous relationship with hope Mm. because I know too much. You know, like I know, I know that even the best case scenario is not going to be great for a lot of people. That is just the truth. Mm. And I know that it's really hard to change, change really big things. And we need to completely transform our food system, our energy system, our transportation system, our government systems, our immigration systems. Like we need to change everything in order to adopt, adapt to the magnitude of environmental changes that are going to keep coming, that are already here and getting worse. Like we've got an insane amount of work to do and like not everyone's super motivated. Right. Mm. Some people are kind of liking things the way they are or they're scared to change or they I think the biggest sector right now is people who want to be a part of the solution but aren't quite sure what to do. Mm. And so I wouldn't say I'm hopeful so so much as like determined, motivated, like we know what we Mm. need to do. We know what renewable energy is. We Mm. know how to do regenerative farming. You know, Mm. we know. um how to replant things. We know how to work together. Um, we know how to push our politicians to do better or to vote them out of office. Like, we know what to do, right? And so that's great. We don't have to, like, invent a bunch of new stuff. <laughs> we just need to, like, get it going, right? right? And that's the vast majority of Americans are in this 
category of either concerned or fully alarmed about what's coming. We're talking about, you know, 60% of Americans who are concerned or deeply concerned about what's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have sort of like a neutral percentage. And the deniers are single digits. It's a very small group who yells very loudly on the Internet, right? How like, do we have so many of them in elected office then? Honestly, a lot of them believe it and they're lying because they've been bought or they're scared. That's depressing. It is depressing. <laughs> and so, like, that's our job as citizens is right. to get them out. Right. Um, but yeah. even people who deny the science of climate change, I think it's important to phrase it that way. You're denying the science of climate change. Mm-hmm. Even those folks want renewable energy. It's cleaner. Like, Mm. it's better for air quality. It's providing jobs in rural areas to be installing and maintaining solar and wind, right? Mm -hmm. Renewable energy is one of the most popular things. Everyone's for it. So if we just went ahead and did the things that people were for, people like national parks. People like having more trees around. People yeah. like having bike lanes that are safe enough to ride in. You know, people like electric cars. They're just nicer. <laughs> I mean, Ford even has like an, an electric F-150 coming out and a Mustang, although we can't each keep having our own cars. That's also part of the problem. But there are all of these solutions that people already support, regardless of how committed they are to, you know, devoting themselves to fixing the climate crisis. And so that's where we start. And it's the same thing with gun control. And it's the same thing with women's rights. These are all issues where the majority of Americans are on the side of justice and caring Mm -hmm. for each other. And we just need to start there and push our politicians to grow a backbone right? and to understand that the majority of Americans will support them. And we need to, like, help them be that brave. And we also have to not just talk about how much we care about these things, but we have to vote. Yes. Because— People on the side. Do you science. care about voting, Sophia? Weird, weirdly, I care just like a, a little fan bit of, of voting. Just like a little bit. I think it's sort of cool. <laughs> I, I'm I'm bothered when I see the numbers and I see that the the deniers of things like science, mm-hmm. who are smaller numbers than the rest of us, outvote us. I don't think if, they outvote us on that because there just aren't that many of them. I guess. But then they're outvoting us on other things when yeah. science should be the number one thing we're voting on. Climate should be it. You know, if you're going to be a single issue voter, be a single issue voter on climate. That's been the hashtag I'm using lately is just vote climate. Hmm, I like that. And it usually correlates with good, you know, platforms on other issues too. Yeah. But yeah, would you like a livable climate? Yes or no? Very much so. All right. Well then like let's consider that. And yeah. not just at the presidential level, but like down ballot. Because yes. there's so many decisions that are made around climate change, around um, you know, electricity generation and utilities are not managed at a federal level, mm-hmm. right? Um, around how we're going to adapt to sea level rise around protecting for or, or replanting ecosystems. Mm. I, I like to think of it as like re-greening the planet. Mm. That's what we need. We need to just have a lot more photosynthesis. It turns out that shit is very effective. Love <laughs> photosynthesis it. is magic and we don't respect it nearly enough. Um, I would like that on a bumper sticker. Photosynthesis. That shit is very effective. <laughs> 
Like that would be a bumper sticker that people would honk for. You know what I mean? I mean, I feel like we could probably make we that We should a make thing. that. I'm ready. Great. T-shirts. Let's tell your friend at the NRDC. We'll yeah. make it. We'll raise some money. Gina. Gina McCarthy. Gina. We need some bumper stickers that say photosynthesis is the fucking best. <laughs> you see, and this this is where we get into like the slogans, the things, the PR of it all. You've yeah. said that the ocean has a bad PR problem. Yeah. Can you explain that and maybe tell us how we can be a part of fixing it? It's just out of sight and out of mind, right? Mm-hmm. Like we don't see the pollution. We don't see how many fewer fish there are generally. Right. We don't see the coastal habitats underwater on a on a day-to-day basis. It's just out of sight and out of mind. Yeah. And so making sure that we are talking about it in other ways, collecting imagery in other ways, talking about the sounds of ecosystems also I love. That's something mm-hmm. that's part of the, you know, that happens underwater too. Coral reefs are actually like kind of loud. There's all these like snapping shrimp and other stuff. There's like a, a kinetic sort of crackle that's happening on a reef. There's all this stuff moving around, mm. right? Um, it's like a real life little snap, crackle, and pop, rice crispy kind of vibe, right? That is very accurate and scientific. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's that's the PR problem is that we have – it's hard to – it can be harder to visualize like ocean acidification or, right. you know, like warming waters. But my friend, Dr. Kate Marvel, who's a NASA climate scientist, she just describes warm oceans as hurricane food. Like they are fueling stronger and wetter hurricanes. And so we need to be thinking about how we use language to describe all these changes and the risks that we're facing and then make the solutions like extremely sexy. Like can we have like hot regenerative farmer magazines? Like – Whatever it takes, you know, I'm here for it. Yes. (laughs) Look, obviously beards are a thing. Like Overalls are in again. Hello? I'm I'm into it. Yeah. Why not? Photo shoot. Great. (laughs) So we're making bumper stickers, t-shirts, and a calendar. A calendar. Great, 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 great. I really like this plan. Oh, so I didn't answer your question about – I didn't really answer any of these questions. I think – you asked about, like, what makes a good scientist. Mm. Yeah, yeah. What um, makes a good marine biologist. And sort of how I got involved in activism. And yeah. so what makes a good scientist is someone who's really curious about the world and wants to understand how things work. Um, and what makes a good environmental scientist is someone who is looking at all these interconnections and trying to figure out, like, what would it look like to repair and restore things and sort of how that connects to humanity and policy. Um, And more and more scientists are starting to work in this multidisciplinary way, which is Mm -hmm. something that is a bit overdue and extremely important. And so we have this major generational shift in scientific research where young people, young scientists are just looking at things as this complicated puzzle and and working in highly collaborative ways, which is really great to see. Um, and so I don't do science anymore. I mean, I have a PhD in marine biology, but it's been a long time since I went scuba diving and counted fish. But I that was always part of my plan was I'm going to learn everything I can about the ocean and climate and then uh, and also, you know, behavior, behavioral economics and and policy and sociology. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to use all of that information to try to um, 
protect the people and the places that I love and mm. the planet and all these ecosystems and 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 fight for justice. And so I sometimes feel like I'm lying when I say I'm a scientist because technically true, but I'm not like out there gathering data anymore. But I do have the skills to interpret the research that other mm. people are publishing and try to make sure that that's used to make good decisions about policy and and how we live together and with nature. I just look at that as an evolution through a career path. Yeah. You know, in a way when you've got to go scuba dive and count fish and be out in the field, you're you're paying your dues to get to the point where you then interpret the data that's being brought to you by the people doing the job you used to do so mm-hmm. that you can do the job at the next highest level. It it kind of feels to me like always taking a step in the direction of doing the next right thing. Mm-hmm. And especially and I when, think everyone has a role to play. Like mm-hmm. the people who collect the research, I don't think it's like a sort of an evolution or a hierarchy. I think that is invaluable. Yeah. I mean an evolution yeah. for you. Yeah. For me personally, it's always just been about like where can I be most useful? Yeah. And, I, and, and I should clarify that because yeah. I, by the way, I think scientists are like I the coolest people do. ever. I know um, you do. But yeah, I, I just think about that as like your track taking yeah. you further and further down the goal of merging science and justice. And when you talk about being the girl who looked— you And you did this amazing thing when you told me the story, and I don't even know if you realize it. You put your hands on the table and you put your palms together, and then you spread them out as if to make the window of the glass-bottom <laughs> boat. And you're talking about this experience you had when you're five, and you, and you spread your hands apart like this, and you looked through the table while you were telling me the story in soft focus, and I could see you seeing yeah. the reef and the fish and everything. You, you were right back there, and that happened to you at five. And then you talk about this really sort of foundationally shaking moment of seeing the documentary at eight and understanding injustice and civil rights and and a history of racial discord in this country and around the world, obviously, and discrimination and how that impacted you at eight. And it's not lost on me that there's a version of that, like you did the science and then you and then you took the science into the justice you know, you've, you've been, something has been sort of touching you for this path for a really long time. There was, there was, there have been a few inflection points. When I was doing my PhD research in the Caribbean, in Curacao and Bonaire, I was going scuba diving. I was working with the local fisheries managers to try to figure out how can we make fishing more sustainable by redesigning fishing gear. So I worked with the fishermen to redesign fish traps that would mm. let the baby fish and the sort of ornamental small species like the Nemos could get out this slot in the corner and the big fish would stay in and fishermen would make the same amount of money, but 80% of the un- wanted fish would be able to get out and so reduce what's called bycatch. And so this worked super well and I published a paper about it, but it was, and, and it's now these escape slots are required by law in a bunch of different places. And that feels really exciting because it's really practical. It's not expensive and it can save a lot of fish. And that was my sort of entry into thinking about how science could specifically design to be useful for policy decisions, right? Like, let me mm. sort of see if I can invent a new type of fish trap that will be more sustainable and then get it adopted by required by law. And the only reason that that caught on as well as it did is because I went to fish markets and got the price of all the different species and priced out, you know, okay, 
well, if, if you use this kind of trap, this was what you'll catch or this or this. And then through that, you can start to say like, well, what would be the economic impact on fishermen of different things? I mean, you can mm. prove this is not actually going to screw over fishermen financially. It's a win-win for conservation, for conservation and economies. Um, then why would you not do it? Right. And so from then I was like, you know, I need to, it's not really about understanding fish. Like fish are nailing it, right? Like they're swimming around, <laughs> they're doing everything right. They're like having a snack. They're like trying to get laid and make babies like and not get eaten. Like fish, they're doing everything right. It's humans that are the problem. Right. Like we're the unsustainable thing in that system. And so how can I better understand how humans are interacting with their environment? So I, um, you know, to do that research of counting fish underwater, it was probably like 300 scuba dives, you know, all these different locations to test all these different permutations and counting thousands of fish. And then I was like, you know what? I need to just like drink beer with fishermen and just better understand how people are interacting with the ocean. And so I spent mm -hmm. months just driving around in a rental car with like folding chairs and a cooler full of beer and snacks in my trunk and just saying, you know, tell me everything. Like, what are the changes that you're seeing? What are you concerned about? If you could write the rules to manage fishing, what would they be? Mm. Because people closest to these resources, right, closest to nature, closest to the dangerous climate changes that we're seeing, they, they've definitely thought about what solutions should be. Like, yeah. we should ask them. Yeah, it isn't theoretical for them. It's really practical. Exactly. It's practically applied. Yeah. And so that was sort of the transition for me from counting fish to talking to fishermen and fishing communities and saying, OK, like, let's figure this out. Like, let me listen to you. Let me spend mm -hmm. hundreds of hours. I did. I conducted over 400 interviews with fishermen and professional scuba divers, the people who understand most intimately what's happening on and under the water. Wow. And that changed my life. Right. Like all the stories that I heard and all the solutions that I heard and being able to present that in the form of policy recommendations. Like I talked to your people and this is what they said. And these are the these are the things that they support. And these are the things that they're worried about. These are the changes that they're seeing. What an amazing way to lead on science, to really center around people yeah. who live at the epicenter of this world. And people are so glad you asked. Yes. Yeah. No one had asked them before. So I'd have fishermen weeks later being like, I thought of an answer to your question. Oh, I love that. And I just love, I mean, that's what you want people coming up to you in the supermarket about, right? Like yeah. you and I are no good at small talk, but like come up to me in the supermarket to talk about ocean policy and I will like stop. Love that. Near the carrots and linger. Great. Yeah. The real carrots. I do have a question for you because it strikes me as I'm listening to you talk about the way that you listen to these people and made an effort to do so, I wonder about your experience as a woman in academia and science mm. because I know that that's a tough arena to be in and to be taken seriously and to be listened to as a woman. And as you mentioned, your experience growing up as a kid, as a woman of color, mm -hmm. what do you think, were there things that you experienced that were letdowns, and, and do you think that those things informed the way you choose to treat people out mm -hmm. in the world as it pertains to science? I've had it really easy. 
That's great. It's great. Like, oh my God, I no have... one ever said that. That's <laughs> such a relief. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, there is a lot of like racist, sexist nonsense happening in science. And I have yeah. friends who have had to deal with really horrible things. I have been really lucky. And there are a few reasons for that, I think. One is I applied for a bunch of fellowships before I started my PhD. So I had full funding for five years of research before I even started. And that gives you so much freedom about choosing your own research and being able to sort of like do the things that you think are most important. You're not beholden to an advisor. You're not on someone else's grant. You're not like in a lot of those scenarios that like put people as a dependent and then like in this uncomfortable crunch of a situation. And I think in some ways, so being a woman in marine biology is particularly weird because like a bikini becomes a work outfit and like that's bananas, right? <laughs> like that is really strange. And like menstruating on scuba diving trips is also like not the best thing. So there are like some like really practical odd things about um, mm. being a woman doing field work that you have to just like think through and like plan for. And I had, like, work bathing suits and then, like, vacation bathing suits, which is really funny. Right. Um, Like, having a work bikini is, like, a weird thing that I have. And so I've also found that it can actually be a great benefit to be a woman doing this kind of work. Mm. And part of that is because sexism is so strong, (laughs) actually, because people don't find you as threatening. There's so much value to continuing to show up. People say that all the time and it can sound really trite, but so often people don't see projects through because it takes a long time. Like it takes years. And so being someone who just shows up, who is respectful, but incredibly determined, you know, who does their homework and who catches people off guard when they just think that a woman isn't going to follow through or, you know, write Mm -hmm. off a woman of color. Like that's on you, bro. Sorry. Like, I want to be part of a really creative movement for massive transformation of society that benefits everyone. And that's going to mean we have to make it beautiful and we have to make it welcoming. And for climate, it means we have to be really deliberate about helping people figure out where exactly they can be a part of a solution. This is my obsession is how do we match everyone's skills with the solutions that we need, right? Mm. Um, How do we make sure people who are our lawyers are finding their place in policy? How do we make sure activists are finding each other so that they're doing this together and keeping their spirits up? And how do we make sure that artists are playing a big role and people who make culture having a big role? We need climate to be a backdrop for every show. Yeah, I don't care if it's a show about, you know, a doctor. Like we have major health problems because of climate change. We have the spread of, you know, mosquito-borne diseases and tick-borne diseases because things are getting so much warmer, like Zika and um, Lyme disease, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Dengue and West Nile. These are public health problems that are exacerbated by climate change. So we can have an emergency room show that is talking about these things. We can have mm-hmm. legal shows that are talking about how absurd our immigration laws are in the face of climate refugees. And so I really just think we need this massive cultural shift. And there are 
the people, the artists, the writers have, the actors, there's so much, the musicians, like there's so much cultural work that can be done, that needs to be done, Mm. that can be so beautiful and joyful and creative. And so whatever you're good at, just find a way to put that to use towards shifting the narrative, towards shifting the status quo, towards Mm creating the world that we want to live in. And we have to stop putting so much pressure on ourselves as individuals to be perfect and like never have a single use water bottle and like obsess over straws and like shame people out of ever getting on an airplane. Like we all need to do our best. Don't get me wrong. Like we should be eating the regeneratively farmed food from farmers markets. We should Mm -hmm. be supporting all of the good stuff people doing the best work. We should be voting with our dollars um, and supporting the the organizations and the businesses that are doing things right. I'm in. I'm in for all of it. I'm mm-hmm. in for better public transit. Like I, But that's the thing. Like there are some decisions that you can't make on your own. Like I, there, I can't take trains everywhere because they don't exist yet, right? Bike lanes are really dangerous for some people because they're not protected. They're out in traffic. And these are we need to be coming together to push for government change because, you know, if you buy an electric car and do your part, but then you plug into the grid and it's powered by coal, like, right. it, that's not your fault. Like, like as an individual, when yeah. you turn on the lights, you don't get to always choose where that energy is coming from. And so we need to be having these broad communal political societal discussions about how we're going to transform things so that people have the good option to choose or that the good option is just the status quo and stop beating each other up about you know i had a burger last night or whatever like don't eat a burger every day but like the we need to be figuring out how to make alternatives available for people Mm -hmm. and that that is the systems change that we need and so i hope that People will not just engage in good stuff and not just be part of like the virtue signaling that sometimes is annoying because you're shaming people who don't have other choices or can't afford other things. But let's all make the best individual choices we can and then like be part of these bigger solutions. You get to hang out with really awesome people, I have to say, when you're doing this work. Like I have the most wonderful colleagues and friends Mm. and collaborators. Um, They're all just incredible. Love that. And a lot of them are badass women and people of color. So um, there's plenty of diversity in this movement. We just need to make sure that we're shining a light on people doing that work. And Mm -hmm. so I have a lot of projects coming up that are based on that. Like how do we make sure that we're highlighting the most important people doing the most important work? And let me let you in on a little secret. It is not five middle-aged white men who are doing all the most important work on climate. Right. I know that may be shocking. I mean, not to me. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not to that many people listening either, but who knows? Yeah. And so this is, this is a, it, it's going to take everyone scenario, right? To Mm -hmm. change everything. We need everyone. Mm -hmm. And I, I think people need to understand that it's not just switching to solar and wind. That's part of it. But electricity is only about a quarter of our climate impact, right? Mm. We have electricity at about a quarter. We have transportation as about a quarter. We have our land use and agriculture collectively as another quarter, right? So Mm. it's going to take a lot of massive changes. And like they're changing towards things that are just better. Yeah. And so 
I'm really excited also about how do we help people imagine what the future could look like if we get it right. Mm. Because we have so many depictions of the apocalypse, right? We have so many images of the future, which are things that we're running away from. Mm. But we don't really know what we're running towards. And it's really hard to do the work if you can't see what you're running toward. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is a, a huge need for... I mean, you could even call it manifesting, right? Like how are we, what's our vision board for the future look like? A lot in, a, in we don't have that in a detailed way. We have like, oh, it's it's all powered by renewable energy. But like, what else? What does it yeah. really look like? What does it feel like? And the way you discuss soil makers and composting as creating these changes in community behaviors, it also Things like that change community cohesion and structure because you're collaborating on something. And the thing that we know about recovering from natural disasters, which are increasingly unnatural and sort of like climate fueled, is that after a disaster, a storm, a fire, a hurricane, a flood, it's your neighbors who you are going to need to rely on. Mm. And so in the context of a changing climate and all of these disasters, like we need to get to know our neighbors. Yeah. Like that is climate work. That is building community resilience, knowing how to help each other and who mm. needs help, who are the elderly and who are the people in your community that need more support. Who should we be checking on, making, making sure they're okay, right? Yeah. Building, I mean, my mantra is that building community around solutions is the most important thing. We can't do it alone. And so building community in general is a really big part of that. Yeah. But doing it towards something. And I think it can be a really beautiful transformation. It will be hard, but it can be beautiful. And that's the world that I want to help create. Same. Same. This feels like kind of a perfect moment to ask you my favorite question to ask everyone. Ask me anything. The podcast, as you know, is called Work in Progress. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, when we think about all of this stuff and where we're going from here, what comes to mind as a work in progress in your life right now? So much. <laughs> I mean, everything is a work in progress. My And my career hasn't followed a normal trajectory, right? There is no roadmap for me as a scientist who wanted to do policy and also like shift culture and care about justice, there wasn't like a, a plan for mm. that. And so I've just gone through the last five years, especially thinking about like, where can I be most useful? And that's a lot of trial and error. And I think we do not value trial and error enough. Like that is a a totally valid approach to life. Mm. Like tr try things. I think sometimes people are so scared to fail that they don't try or they're so scared not to be right that they don't try. Yeah. Um, and of course, like make informed decisions and do your homework. Like let's not go off half cocked, right? But like let's think through like we don't know how everything is going to play out. So gather all the information that you can and do your best. Mm. And so I've got a bunch of different projects along those lines. Urban Ocean Lab is is one, this think tank for the future of coastal cities, nonprofit that I'm co-founding and um, just starting to get off the ground. I 
I am also working on a podcast about climate solutions that I can't wait to share more about in a few months. I am doing a lot of work to elevate the voices of women leaders on climate. Mm. There are incredible women doing extremely important work on climate who no one has ever heard of, and I want to make them all famous. Um, And so one of the ways that that's manifesting is a book, an anthology. The women doing the work are not going to stop to write a book about it. And honestly, like we need them to keep doing it. And so I am co-editing this anthology of essays by women climate leaders. And there'll be a a huge launch around it um, in the fall, um, in September. And so that's one of the things that I'm most excited about. I can't wait to share it with you because it's also really beautiful. It is it is essays, some of which are really heavy and hard about what we need to do and, and sort of who's impacted when we don't. Mm. It's about our food system. It's about our energy system. It's about politics and policy and the Green New Deal and the cultural transformation that we need and all of it. And it's interspersed with poems and beautiful original artwork. And the name of the book is All We Can Save. And the subtitle is Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis, because that's what we need, right? I love that. And it's just like, it's a total work in progress because co-editing an anthology with my one of my favorite people, Dr. Katherine Wilkinson, has been a crazy wild ride Like to put together this massive book in a short period of time. And so we make sure it comes out before the election so we can start to have these public conversations about who needs to be leading us in this time towards these solutions. Mm. And so that is a work in progress that I am so excited to be able to share with the world. Oh, I can't wait for your book. And then how does that become something that nurtures an entire community of women leaders and makes sure they're interwoven in their work and supporting each other, creating this like, instead of a fellowship, a sistership, a Mm. climate sistership. And what would the feminist climate renaissance look like, right? Like if gender equality enabled us to all operate at our maximum potential and collaborate on climate solutions, we would be a lot further along. And that's the world that we need to unleash. Mm. And so that is a lot of the work I do is trying to figure out like, what would it look like to support the people doing the most important things that are having trouble raising money or getting people to listen to them? Because, you know, I'm only one person, you know, reading a bunch of nerdy stuff and, and trying to share it with others and distill it. But I care so much about making sure that we know about all the good things that are happening because otherwise it's a really depressing world. But there's Mm -hmm. so much good that is happening that we can talk about and replicate and and support and scale and share. And so this um, climate sistership program giving funding, funding people who are doing this work so they don't have to, because often it's a side hustle. Like when your most important work is your side hustle, like let's figure out a way to support you so you can just do it full time and not have to be doing whatever it is that pays your bills and gets you health care and keeps a roof over your head. Like, no, we'll 
we'll make sure you're covered so you can do the work. So fundraising for this sistership program is something that I'm, is a work in progress. We're, we're hopefully going to launch this in the fall around the time of the book as well. Amazing. Yeah. And then I'm writing my own book. And that is the scariest work in progress because that is the thing that I am doing alone. Yeah. Of course, I'm leaning on so many brilliant people and trying to, to again, just pull solutions to the fore. Where are the climate solutions at the intersection of science and policy and justice and culture? And how do we accelerate the implementation of those solutions? That is what my book is about. That doesn't have a title, mm. but it's going to be a big adventure of a research project. And I'm really excited for that to be born at some point next year. So just a few things. I've got <laughs> I'm not bored. Let me put not, it that way. Well, that's also because you're not boring. Um, I try not to be boring. Yeah. Yeah. you got a lot going on because you're interested in a lot. Yeah. Which is why I'm obsessed with you. No shock. <laughs> I can't wait for us to invent ways to collaborate on this I stuff, know. too. I mean, I think the need to shift the cultural narrative around climate and justice and ocean and solutions, like we have the solutions, let's talk about them, let's yes. get it done. There's so much work we can do there. I'm ready. Great. All right. Let's do it. And all of you listening at home can come along for the ride. Please. We're yeah. going to need all the help we can get. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. 